0: Amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, we're going to go through uh, a ton of Scripture today. Um, At our church, I guess you could describe us as Bible thumpers in a good way. We love Scripture, and typically when we, we go through sermon series, we try to go through verse by verse and just go straight through books of the Bible because we believe it's all inspired and we should read it all, everything from the genealogies to the plans of different cities to love poems to letters to churches, all this stuff. And so uh, it's not typical for us, although the last, like, gosh, eight, ten weeks we've gone through topical series, as Matt, I mean, uh, Brad talked about. We have the, uh, we did the family trait series, which is, uh, um, was important to affirm what we're all about and to remind us uh, to be about the things that are most important. we the Easter series, which is a series of roads all about Jesus, but I just am excited to get back into Exodus, which we began, I think, in September. Um, It took us quite a long time just to get through Exodus 15, and uh, that's where we're going to pick it back up today. And in the first of three parts, the... uh, Exodus is kind of divided into three sections, so we went over the the first 15 chapters, and we watched this story, this story of identity for for Jews today, even. Um, My mother is Jewish, the whole side of a family is Jewish, and their identity, um, most evident in a Passover, if you're ever able to kind of have... Um, that opportunity to um, be in a Passover, a Seder dinner with with Jews, is pretty awesome. And they go through; it's a story of Exodus, and how it points to Christ. They don't really see that. My mom would show me as I was sitting there, but it's this story of identity for them um, that is really, in a lot of ways, roots of our own identity. But in this story, we watch as God redeems His own people from enslavement to a very prideful and oppressive series of leaders, but in particular one leader, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt, and in the 430th year of their enslavement, which is a lot of years and hard for us maybe to imagine how many years of enslavement that was, but 430 years, an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd guy, once a prince of Egypt named Moses, who was told by fiery shrubbery to go back into Egypt and, by God's power, redeem and release the people. He goes in, and he goes into Pharaoh's court, which, again, um, the fact that he got into the court, it was somewhat public, he could go in there, but what he says is a little noteworthy. He walks into this court in an empire, and a pantheon of a huge number of gods, thousands of gods, and he says this, boldly. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now this is a kingdom that had been built on the backs of these slaves and to allow their entire economy to kind of walk out was unheard of and it's surprising maybe that Pharaoh, although he certainly had the right to, didn't just kill him right there or throw him out. But Pharaoh responds to him that he says this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And so, clearly, what you see in Exodus chapter 5 is that God took Pharaoh's question quite literally and seriously, and so he answered him. And for the next ten chapters is his answer of exactly who I am, Pharaoh. And it's a series of devastating plagues that are intended to reveal the nature and character of God. And in the midst of these devastating plagues, it just, that re, it leaves Egypt in ruins in every way you can think of, economically, um, socially, politically, everything is just wiped out, just decimated. As they do this, or as God unleashes this, He protects His own people. And we get to, um, nine, through nine plagues, which are just, there's gnats and flies and frogs and all these things that you probably have seen in some of the, you know, the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or something like that. Uh, unheard of and unseen before and, again, type of devastation. And the tenth and final plague is the worst. God says, all right, I'm going to come through and I'm going to kill the firstborn of everything. Your firstborn child your firstborn cattle, everything firstborn. And he tells Israel, of which he is protected at this point, from the plagues. Here's how you're going to be protected from this plague. It's like, I will allow you to have a substitute. And it's a very specific substitute. And you can take a certain kind of lamb, a male lamb, a this, and, and you're going to take that lamb and you're going to kill it. And you're going to have a feast, and there's very particular things he asks them to do. And one of the things is to take the blood of that lamb that they kill on that night, that I'm going to come through and wipe them out, and wipe the blood on the door of your home. And if the blood is there, anyone that's inside with you will be protected, and I will unleash my judgment on everyone else, but I will unleash my judgment that's reserved for you on that lamb. And so they're protected, and they receive the blessings of protection. And throughout the story, though, in Egypt, and as they leave Egypt, God tests these people. He tests their faith, which makes I think some of us, all of us, feel uncomfortable. God testing me? Why testing me? To see if I really believe? And the Passover ceremony itself is a test of faith. They have to do a certain thing. If they participate, and God says, "Do this, and you'll be saved," they can certainly choose not to. Say, "I don't believe that's going to happen." but they choose to and they demonstrate their faith. And then they they walk out and again, they're tested again. God says, I'm going to lead you out by a cloud and a pillar of fire at nighttime to show you where to go. And so God leads them out after this tenth plague out of Egypt and he leads them in the opposite direction they would expect to go. They head south instead of hoping to go kind of northeast up to where the promised land God had said. that's not where the cloud is, and you can imagine them going, but God, why is your cloud going that way? We're supposed to, He follows, and they follow. He leads them in strange directions, testing to see if they'll follow. Then He leads them to the sea. And behind them in this, where they imagine the cross, there's these large caverns, it's one way out. And they go to the Red Sea, and they're sitting there, and look back, and all the chariots show up. And like, this is great, God. Didn't really see this one coming, I don't think. Where are we going to go? And he says, walk towards the sea. And they look over and the sea hasn't split yet. They're like, it doesn't tell them it's going to split. Walk towards the sea. A million people. Cattle. Brilliant. Okay, so they walk towards the sea. And the sea splits. And then he's like, go into the sea. And look over, which is probably a couple hundred miles across. And they go, can't really see the end. Um, Well, I'm going to the sea. Go into the sea. And so they go into the sea and he's constantly testing. Are you going to listen to what I tell you to do? And begrudgingly at times, with some complaint, they do. And the final, as they come out of the sea, they look back and they see chariots, or Pharaoh coming through with his chariots and his men and they're all breaking in the middle of the sea and they're starting to run through the mud and the waters crush them and close up and they're left to see dead bodies floating all over and they sing they sing for the victory they sing for the release from all the pain and anguish finally their oppressor has been destroyed finally they've been released to live life in freedom again in joy again they're not waking up and going to be whipped the next morning, or have to make bricks the next morning, or fear that Pharaoh might get upset again and start killing their firstborn children and throwing them in the Nile again. They're free, and they sing. And Moses sings a victory song song ascribing God this glory. And what we're going to study today is pretty amazing in that context, and the fact that after this amazing Red Sea experience... Within three days, they're grumbling against God. they've forgotten everything that has happened and I know for me personally, read this you're like, how could they do that? Kind of like the Pharisees? How did they didn't know Jesus was the, you know We look back at such judgment, thinking that we're like Moses or Jesus or some good guy in the story when we're not. We would have been grumbling too, and so God tests them, though, again as they grumble by leading them into more places that will, in fact, cause more grumbling because what they expect to be there isn't there. And strangely, I was telling somebody this this week. We're basically going to look through three stories or three narratives where they complain. And wouldn't you know it? My kids complained this week. More, I think, than they ever have in their entire lives. They were screaming all kinds of things at each other, at me arguing. I was like, what is the deal? And I learned very quickly, um, I guess I thought what God may have felt like a little bit. Not that I am in any way close to being the perfect father that he is. But sometimes those kids just complain for no good reason. You know what I mean? And some of you know exactly what I mean, right? And if you're kids, hey, that's okay. All right, because I'm a kid too. Chapter 15, verse 22 is where we're going to start. And we'll hear about the complaining and grumbling right after they've left the Red Sea. We'll start in verse 22 of chapter 15. Here's what it says. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. <clears throat> and when they came to Marah, or Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah, which is what the word means, bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palms, and they encamped there by the water. So three days pass, and they enter the wilderness from the coast, and little do they know that they'll remain in the same wilderness for 40 more years. They're kind of hoping for a quick trip, I think. And the, the place they arrive has nothing but bitter water. And it's imagine the place that this is, or the place that scholars think this is. There's water there, and the minerals uh, create a, a tremendously high salt content in the water. And so it's like really soupy, salty water that would be undrinkable. And mind you, they've got um, probably close to a million people, kids and, and you know, wives and, and husbands, and they've got cattle that they're going to have to feed. And so they look around and are like, what are we going to do? This is not drinkable water. And the memory of, of God's redemption who did... Quite literally, the impossible is overwhelmed by the fact that they're going to be and are very thirsty. And they don't see how this is going to be resolved. And so, they have been talking since the beginning when Moses showed up about this three-day festival. Right? We're going into the wilderness to have a three-day festival. It's been more than three days, Moses, and now all I see is like a Salty Sea Days festival. Where is the festival we're talking about? The food, the drink... We're supposed to walk into this land of milk and honey, and we got salt. What are we supposed to drink? And so, humanly speaking, it's very, I think, understandable, and I don't think I should, or anyone should be judgmental as they consider what they need in this moment and maybe get a little bit discouraged about running out of water that they've brought with them. And it's hard, I've realized, which isn't like some kind of brilliant realization. But when uh, you don't have what you think you need or you don't see how the problem is going to be solved, um, it's very difficult to have faith. It's very difficult to trust. Um, Typically, I think if we're honest, the strength of our faith is often very much, more than we would ever admit, predicated on how satisfied we are materially. And I'm not talking about like wealth and things of that nature. I'm just talking about the basics. When you don't have what you think that you're supposed to need, I think that sometimes we're like these... If we have everything we're satisfied with and we have everything we think we need, we're like spiritual giants. Oh, don't worry, the Lord will provide. Because He is. Right? And you're like, oh, I can get over any obstacle. Because you have recently. But the person who is suffering in that moment doesn't have it. They become what amounts to the you know little infant in the fetal position, shivering like, Lord, it's not coming through. Because of what we have or don't have. I think very much that dictates a lot of our faith. Just the stuff that we have or don't have. And I'm talking about stuff as in whether I have a we or not. You know? I'm talking about you know, whether I have enough food, whether I have a job. My faith is good if I do, and strong if I have it, and weak if I don't. And so, I think that it's beyond us, even in the next thing to let me just give you a little nugget to think about that ga- that God gad let's that God might actually lead us to bitter water. This isn't a guessing game as to where God wants them to go here. This is like pooh cloud. Doo-doo-doo. There's uh, bitter water over there. There's some springs over there. Doo-doo-doo. Would God actually lead me to a place where there's bitterness and bitter water? That's what He does here, and we like to believe that God, especially for those who are Christians, right? We have this big redemptive experience. We're like, life is wonderful. Three days after, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa! I'm a Christian now. Um, why, why am I getting this bitter and bitter stuff? Where God maybe puts us in. To a place where our faith is going to have to grow more. We're going to have to trust on Him more. And so without question life gets bitter and it's hard sometimes and it's a struggle and there's the trials. And I think one of the hardest things to determine for me personally and I don't have an answer to this, is which of the things are our trials in our life or the times when God's leading us And which of the trials that are created just by our really bad choices? And that's the hard part for me. Like, God, did I put myself in this situation? Or did God really lead me this direction? And without question, God is in control of all of it. And here we see that regardless of the situation, whether you put yourself in it or not, he oftentimes still shows us grace and still gives us an opportunity and a way to get out of it. But in this case, God does lead them into a place where he's going to test them. And when they complain, when they begin to define the reality by what they see and not what they know about God and what they've experienced with God, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't question them. He doesn't just unleash on them, which I often do with my kids, honestly, where they complain about something like, how dare you? All right? God doesn't do that, although he has all the right in the world to. He hears their complaint and responds. He Moses cries to Moses, which is what we should do. And God tells him to find this piece of wood. Some people say it's a tree. Some people, scholars say it's a miracle. Some say it's not. I personally think it's a miracle. I don't think it was some wood, cross-shaped piece of wood that was sitting there like, yes, Jesus. I mean, I don't think that's what it was. I think God basically said, look, there's this solution right there in your world I'm going to do a miracle through it, but it's that right there. And he puts it in there and becomes sweet water. And the thing that I keep getting from this whole bitter water thing is that what God didn't do. He didn't just rain out water. Don't worry, it's going to rain and just look up and open your mouths, right? He didn't go, fountain. You know, have fountains come up. He took the bitter water. He didn't remove it. And He transformed that bitter water into something sweet. And all too often we're so worried about, get rid of the bitter water. This bitter water is not supposed to be here. No, it is supposed to be here, and it is what you're going to drink. But God is going to take that bitter water and make it sweet. That seems impossible. How could you possibly take this disgusting situation and make it better? He makes it better by this way with Moses. He says, do this. And if you're faithful to what I tell you to do, it will be sweet. If you obey my word, Moses, but it's just a stick, I'm going to make all this water with this stick. I got millions of people, and he didn't question. He puts it in, he trusts God's word, and it works. And so I believe that trusting God's word will make life sweet. It will, through the bitterness, know despite the bitterness, even within the bitterness of what the water might be. And the entire experience, he says, is, alright, I'm setting the ground rules for this whole relationship. Okay? Here are the ground rules. If you obey my word, it will go well for you. If you obey my word, if you trust my commandments, if you listen to what I say, if you do what I ask, and what I say through my word, You will have joy, you will have health, even when it looks like it ain't going to happen. But if you don't, and this is the kicker, we don't read the other part, if you do not, it's going to go as well for you as it did for Pharaoh. And you can read Exodus to see how well that went. It's like you're going to have the diseases. You think God would judge us like he did Pharaoh? That's what the Bible says when you don't follow his word. When you don't follow his word. We get in Exodus chapter sixteen. For the second complaint. God leads them after the bitter water, he feeds them there, then he leads them out to an oasis, a place where they get some good rest. Probably wanted to stay there, but Moses, by God's direction, moves them on. It says in verse sixteen. I'm sorry, chapter sixteen. for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So let's just see what happened. Three days after they leave the coast, they complain because there's only bitter water. Probably a couple of weeks, at least less than a month after they leave the coast, and certainly a couple of weeks after he's transformed this water that they just had, they complain again because they got no food. Their empty stomachs are what's creating the. Lack of faith at this point. And so what happens, and this happens to a lot of us, they begin to romanticize how things used to be back in the oppression days. Remember, guys, back in the oppression days? It was so great. I know they were throwing our babies in the river and stuff, and we woke up every morning to be whipped by taskmasters, and we had to go travel to find little stubble to get hay and make bricks. But wasn't it grand that we had meat when we got home? Yeah, it's totally irrational. Irrational. It's the same thing that happens to people when they throw off or have redemption or freedom from that oppressive sin that's been just plaguing them. And they have some one experience of hunger where things get bad and things start to get struggle, And they're like, man, I remember when I was sinning it up, it was, it was great. I didn't have to worry about this stuff. No, just the judgment of God is what you had to worry about. But we do, we romanticize the way things used to be when I wasn't following God's word. When I wasn't being led. Man, things got so much harder when I started, you know, God lead me. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. But they romanticize it, make their slavery sound way better than it actually was. And despite their unfaithfulness, despite the fact they're beginning to attack Moses and Aaron directly now, I'm like, you're trying to kill us. Despite that, God, even before Moses cries to him, he says he'll provide. But he also says it's going to be a test, another test. So in verse 4, he says this, The Lord said to Moses, before he cries, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they'll walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall go, I'm sorry, you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we, Moses and Aaron saying this, what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, he looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, and Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So God promises, I'm going to bring bread. I'm going to pour out bread to deal with the hunger of these people. And I'm going to give you quail as well. And the whole point of me doing this is, yes, so you are satisfied and your hunger is met, but it's more so that you know me. God is so constantly about revealing himself to people, having relationship with people. His judgments in the, throughout the entire Exodus story was, the purpose was that he will know who I am. It was to answer Pharaoh's question. Jesus, when he's praying for his disciples, it says in John 17, 3, eternal life is this, to know God. And so he's always interested whether it be a bitterness of life or hunger, it's always about knowing Him more and knowing how much He loves and provides. And so the primary end of this thing is not to provide food. It's in many ways to provide knowledge. See, God became a healer in the beginning because of the bitterness of the world. And the world became bitter because of sin. When our first parents decided to partake of whatever fruit it was doesn't say an apple would be interesting maybe it was like a hanging watermelon or something but when they decided to partake the world broke and everything in it life became very much bitter so god has nothing else to work with so by nature he has to be a healer because everything is broken and so He heals us and He protects us. But the reason why sin entered the world and it broke was because men decided, that being Adam and Eve, to, that they could provide for themselves. That they didn't need God. That they could live a life independent of Him. And so the world broke and He had to become, or re-become, what He intended to be in the beginning, which was a provider. And so today, men hunger. Hunger. Men get hungry, literally and figuratively. And they hunger and are never satisfied, though they try so hard. I mean, we do. We try to satisfy our hunger with sex. We try to satisfy our hunger with power and regard and fame and fortune and money. We try to do it sometimes with relationships. We try to do it with a family. If I just have a family, that will satisfy this hunger I have. And they fill it. And what happens, the Bible says, is it's never satisfied. You're always looking for more, you're always constantly hungry, because men can't be satisfied fully with bread. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan directly, Satan said, "Make those rocks bread." And he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter eight verse three, which says this: "Speaking Moses about this very complaint. is then he humbled you, speaking of God, and let you hunger." and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know this, that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so he's teaching them this. And in verse 13, he continues to test them. So in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was a face on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat, and he shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so, and they gathered some more and some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And each of them gathered as much as they could eat. So what happens is, uh, God, although he has the right to be very angry for their lack of faith, and their grumbling, he is loving, and he rains on them this bread stuff. And we have to remember that he is training them. This is like a train boot camp for them. This is school. And he's, not, he's training them to not use their perceptions to dictate and define their reality. He's teaching them in many ways how to obey. This is what faith looks like. So first, God gives bread and he says, they call it manna, which is the phrase for what is it. They don't really know what it is. Not like we imagine maybe like Wonder Bread coming down and they walk out and like, wow, look at all those rolls. It wasn't like that. It was a small like seed. Uh, they describe it as a flaky little seed. Tastes like honey. And so they would scoop it up. You can imagine it covering like, like snow kind of everywhere. And so they would scoop it up and every morning and there were certain guidelines they had to demonstrate their faith. And he said, first and foremost, each morning as you gather it, only gather as much as you need for your home. Everyone gets a couple quarts of it. And then, eat it till you're full of what you have, and don't save any of it. Get rid of the extra. And then, on Friday, gobble, 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 gather, Sorry to say double and gather. You ever do that? It makes them like double. Gather double as much as you typically did. Because on Saturday, the fourth rule is you don't gather anything. And I love the fourth rule. I'm a big fan of the fourth rule. It says that's the Sabbath, because God provides our needs, but He also provides us very specifically rest to enjoy what He provides. And I'm always blown away by people who do not partake of that, believing that they, in a sense, can provide for themselves. We must take a Sabbath. We must take a rest. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before we have the commandment to honor the Sabbath. This is part of the very fabric of God's creation, the design how things are intended to be from the beginning. It is intended for man not as some oppressive rule, but as a way to experience rest and refreshment by enjoying all the provision God has given us. And I have only probably celebrated the Sabbath very particularly for a couple of years. And it's been nurturing to my soul. Because I believed, I was like the you know, typical guy, I work harder, I'll do more, it'll be better. I'm a big fan of naps and I'm a big fan of the Sabbath huge fan of naps, becoming a bigger fan of naps. But it's meant for you to stop working and to enjoy what God has provided you with food. They get to have a meal with your family, to enjoy your family. But it's not all about your kids. It's about your refreshment too. Faith, my faith, I believe the Christian faith, includes enjoyment. It includes enjoyment joy in God. It's not intended to be just obedience, obedience, and obedience is always bad. Obedience to experience joy. You need to take a rest. I don't like to obey. We Think about that. God, all your rules are really terrible. Really, he tells me to rest, to take a day off. Ah, beautiful. But in verse 19, they don't listen to his rules. He says this, And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them, and morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. And on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, couple, four quarts or so, when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you'll bake and boil what you'll boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they they Lay it aside till morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you'll not find it in the field. Six days you'll gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. But on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Now, Israel fails in kind of a couple different ways. One, they are very bold. God says, don't keep it. And they're like, nope, we're keeping it. And it rots. And then he says, I'm going to provide for you on Saturday. It ain't going to be there. Don't go the seventh day. I'm telling you. You'll be disappointed. And again, as men often do, I bet God might be wrong. All right? But he says, it ain't going to be any there. Well, maybe he doesn't know everything. Same thing happened to Adam and Eve. Satan's lies. Oh, you're not going to die. You know what God really knows. So maybe God's lying to me. He doesn't want me to have extra. I'm going to beat all these other guys out there. So in the morning they go out, and it's not there. And then God says to Moses, which he's really saying to Israel through Moses, How long? How long are you going to refuse to listen to me? How many times have I said that to my kids? How long, right? I know what I'm talking about. How long are you going to refuse to obey? Now, this has only been said one other time, prior. And this was after the seventh plague. I won't ask for you to tell me what the seventh plague was. I'll tell you, okay? The seventh plague was the hail. And the hail were like hail balls like this size. They were huge. And they decimated the land. And it had already been wiped out. Frogs and gnats, they had boils, I mean it was just nasty, and then if it wasn't bad enough, wiped out all their crops, killing cattle, people dying, coming through roofs, it was just, everything was destroyed. And Pharaoh looks out to his decimated life. And he says, no. And Moses shows up right before the eighth plague and says, how long What is it going to take for you to obey and to believe that what I say is for the best and is right? How long are you going to keep rebelling and complaining? And I imagine that God, and He is, is angry. He's angry because these people that He has loved for so much and provided for so much, want to sit and judge God and His Word. They want to judge the truthfulness of His Word. They want to judge the goodness of God. They want to judge the omniscience of God, that He knows everything. They want to judge His ability to provide. They want to stand on judgment on God, which is what we all do when we sin. I don't think your law is to be taken seriously, so I'm not going to take you very seriously in anything. That's what we do. We want to play the judge. But there's only one judge, and that is God. By very nature of being God. It is the nature of a creator to judge creation. It is not the opposite. We have no right. We have no ability. Our judgment is skewed, and our judgment is wrong. And so, our faith is supposed to be the faith that Israel is supposed to have. See, we like to have faith, I think, of these Red Sea experiences, like, you know, the big highs. Woo! Mountaintop stuff. Look, we got through the Red Sea. Victory! Let's live in that. And that's all we think about. And then all the spaces in between those experiences, we're complaining, whining little babies until we get another big victory. Woo! water sweet! Oh, where are you, God? Where are you? Woo! we wait for the next one. The difficult thing about Christianity, is, if you're not a Christian, it's tough. I'll tell you right now, though, your life, if you're not a Christian, is easy. Living in sin is the easiest thing you can do. Because you can do whatever the snarf you want, right? Doesn't matter. And if you are a Christian and hyper-religious, freaky legalist, your life is easy, too. Because you just make your list and just don't do anything on the list or do everything on the list. The hard part is living a genuine Christian faith every day where you have to interact with God and discern what His Word says all the time. That's hard. But that's where God wants us. If this demonstration of manna, think about it. They have to demonstrate so much faith because every day God's going to provide them fruit. Think about a life like that. It might be helpful. I think we'd probably complain where you're not really certain if you're going to get food or not, right? Every all your food comes from God. So wake up in the morning, kids, I want my cereal. Well, I don't know if the, let's see if the manna came today, kids, okay? All right, we can eat. Food's here. But we don't live like that. We got our pantries full, right? Not these guys every day. And then they bring in the food. They they have to just believe have faith that it's going to be there. Then they bring it in. They got their two quarts. We got some extra left over. We could just take, you know, a little Ziploc bag and put it. Back. No, you have to destroy it all, or it's going to get wormy and stinky, right? What do you mean? Well, what, what if what if you don't provide it tomorrow? Though, you got to trust that I'm gonna. Well, let me just put this back. No, you got to trust that I'm gonna. And then Friday comes along, right? Well, there's gonna be double there, right? God, you gotta—I mean, do you want me to gather double? You gotta give me like double. And that's like a lot. I mean, that's like double of everything, right? So I gotta trust there's gonna be enough out there on Friday for Saturday. But just in case, maybe I'll go check, you know, because maybe. But no, faith. There's gonna be enough, and that Saturday I can have faith that I'm provided for. It's a daily discipline of faith every day. Give us. Today, our weekly bread. No! Give us this day our daily bread. me from temptations. Daily. Help me to forgive. Daily. It's a daily practice of faith. But we don't live in that place. They had to. And they sucked at it. And we're very similar. But until we get to the place where Israel is, where we're in a constant, perpetual desperation for God is where we won't live lives of faith. We have to be perpetually desperate, perpetually in need, and sometimes God has to take us into places where there's bitter water and nothing to eat to show us how in need we actually are and how much we cannot provide for ourselves. Then the last complaint. Exodus 17. This is like, this one blew me away, but this is what we'll close on. Yes, we just went through almost three chapters. Pretty awesome. All right, 17, verse 1. And what they do is they, they, they keep a bit of the manna. They put it in a little jar of some kind to remind them of God's provision. And they end up putting it. It's supposed to be a testimony. And people are like, well, how will it ever be a testimony if it's going to eventually be in the ark? And they're carrying around this box everywhere. And what they imagine is when they travel from place to place with the ark leading them, they'd open up the top and they would see the Ten Commandments there and they'd see the manna that had been miraculously preserved, because it's supposed to melt, right? It's supposed to melt, it's supposed to rot, but it's sitting there to remind them that God is always providing, always always leading them. So they do that. In verse 17, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on, always moving, from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, follows again the cloud into the west side of sinai where they will get the ten commandments eventually and there they find no water and they complain again and this time they appear to get a little more upset than normal and moses responds to them and says why are you testing god see it's okay as much as it's difficult to think about for god to test you he tests us so the bible says If you are a believer in Jesus, He tests your faith. He gives you opportunities to fail and succeed in demonstrating your trust in Him. But we have no right ever to test God. That's exactly what Israel does. And how they do it, it says, if you skip to the last verse, verse 7, it says, they call the name, the place, Massah. And Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Here's their test. Is God here or not, Moses? Where is God in this situation? We have no water again. And this time they're not near bitter water. They're in the middle of rock land. Rocks everywhere. No little pools. Nothing. Nothing. And God has to sound like, or feel like an exasperated parent, right? He's got to feel, I don't know. Sometimes I, with my kids, I love them to death, but they complain a ton this week. And I think God was just using them to be like, yeah, let me show you what you're like, Sam. You know, and just like my kids were complaining. And there's those times where you want to stand back sometimes objectively and go, you know what, kids? And they would never be able to understand you. Maybe they could, they would just argue more and complain. Do you know how much I do for you? Do you realize that you get up every morning and there's cereal there because I buy it? Do you realize that you don't go to school naked, although you might want to, because I bought you clothes? I mean, do you realize that that storm out there—it's scaring the snot out of you—doesn't get you because you have a roof over your head? Do you realize the only reason you can play Wii because I bought a TV. Right, They don't realize those things. I don't get that. Complain, complain, complain. And then there's, I want out of this family. I'm sure your never kids never said that, okay? Well, my kid has. Twice. He got as far as the sidewalk once. My new thing now, though, is like, you want to go? Let me pack your bag. With my stuff, right? My clothes that I bought you. Oh, let me give you my pillow that I bought you. And that bed that you normally sit on, which I got for you. I mean... We look at our children and they, uh, my, ch- my children are, are generally appreciative, but there are those moments like this where they are not at all. And I wonder how much, if we just change the roles a little bit and see ourselves as that infant kid with God going, where are you? What do you do for me? And him sitting back going, you just don't get it, do you? You don't understand that everything you have, everything, not just your Bible." Everything I have given you. I give you that food. I make sure that car stops when you hit the brake pedal. I am so constantly taking care of you. We don't think that way. We so much think that we're providing all this stuff for ourselves, and we're not. Where is God? We are complainers. We are Israel in this story where we spend more time asking God where he is and why he hasn't given us X, Y, Z discontent, because at the core of it, we don't trust God is either able, willing, or nice enough to provide. We are the infant children who complain, oblivious to how God has protected us. What about this bad thing? Is it as worse as it could be? You don't love me, really. But you spanked me. Uh Uh-huh. The most loving thing I could have done for you and me. Right? And even Moses, I think, his faith flounders a little bit because he goes to them, he's freaking out. It's not just, you know, hey, Lord, crying out. Now it's like, what am I going to do? These people are about to stone me. They're about to kill me. And it's like, His faith is starting to flounder. So here's what God does, and it's amazing. And I think we read past this and don't even see it. We'll go back to verse 5. Here's what the Lord says. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Here's what God does. God says, "All right, you want to test me? You want a trial? I'll give you a trial, Moses. Go ahead and grab that stick that represents my judgment. The stick that you use to bring judgment upon Egypt. The stick you will use in the second half of this chapter to bring judgment on the Amalekites. The rod of judgment. Grab your stick. And then go ahead and grab some of your elders, who, in the next chapter, will officially become the judges of Israel, but at this point they're probably acting that way. So you got your judgment, your scales of justice, if you will, and your judges. So bring your judges and your judgment over to this rock. And so Moses does. And he says, "Stand before this rock, and this is the rock they think, actually. There's a rock that's in the general location that they believe. And it may not be, but it's kind of cool to imagine you see a clear picture of it. And it's the rock up on this kind of hill, and it's split and has water uh, erosion all from out of it. Pretty awesome. He says, come to this rock. And he says, I want you to strike the rock in judgment, with the rod of judgment, and it will provide water to drink. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I will stand before you on the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. So in essence, here's what God does. I'll give you a trial, and I'm going to bear the judgment that you deserve, you complaining, whining creations who have done nothing and deserve to die. You deserve to die just as Adam and Eve and all of us deserve to die because we have rebelled against God. This is what you deserve. You complain about God's ability. You complain about God's goodness. You complain about God's love. And though God justly and rightly, and we probably would, wipe them out. Kind of like we just yell at our kid when they complain. Just like Pharaoh, he could kill them. Instead, he says, I will submit myself To judgment. My own rod, but to your judgment. I'll submit and take it. Take that guilty verdict that you deserve. And stand in your place to receive the judgment that you deserve. And from that judgment, I will give you life. I will give you water. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul recounts his exact same story of what's really going on here. And as everything, it's all about Jesus. In warning the Corinthian church about their idolatry, all the things that they used to satisfy their own hunger, he says, I want you to know, brothers, <clears throat> that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. See, the rock struck by Moses in taking that judgment is Jesus. And it points us all to the ultimate satisfaction for all our complaining, and that though we reserve, or deserve, I should say, judgment, Of God, though we deserve to not, we don't have the right to complain in any way. God doesn't wipe us out like He should. But instead, He sends whom Jesus called Himself, the bread of heaven, to come down. And He comes and He submits Himself to the, quote, judgment of men. And He suffers, though He did nothing but heal people. And He, on the cross, suffers for our sins. That people might experience new life because he was struck and water flowed. He even said it particularly in John chapter 4. He says, Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of a well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That is what we believe the story of Exodus, the story of redemption, the story of these Israelites complaining about the bitterness of life, about the needs that they think they have. Ultimately, God says, you have no right to complain. And instead of killing them, he provides everything, and that includes, ultimately, himself. And what we celebrate every Sunday is Jesus coming down and, Dying for us, taking our judgment, being struck by God is what he's being struck by. Because God proves himself perfectly just and perfectly right and yet at the same time perfectly gracious and loving. And we celebrate the death of Jesus reminding ourselves that at best, at best, at best, we are whiners, we are complainers. We are people who do not see how much God gives us. We are people who do not depend on God daily. And yet, He knows that and He loves us. That is grace. An amazing grace. It is not sinful to complain. The psalmist records complaints. It's simple to believe that you can provide for your own brokenness and bitterness. I'm going to end by praying Psalm 55 or part of it. And it's a complaint. But that's a glorious solution to it. Let's pray. Father, I pray you receive glory today for all that we say and do. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. But you say, God, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous, to be moved. All glory to Jesus. Amen.